This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. NBR's election series is looking at what various sectors are interested in leading up to the general election in October. Today we're looking at the hospitality sector and Steve Armitage is this week set to take the reins as Chief Executive at Hospitality New Zealand. And he joins me now. Hi, thank you for coming in. No problem. Now, tell us a little bit about, first of all, the hospitality sector after COVID. I think it's pretty common knowledge um, from most Kiwis that hospitality um, suffered pretty dramatically. Um, yeah. You know, the measures that were put in place at the time saw hospitality experience pretty, pretty hard headwinds, um, and we're still recovering from that. So issues like you know being able to attract workforce back in to, to support uh, our venues to be able to open up again and to provide high quality service to customers has been a real challenge. So immigration remains an, an area where we're, we're very interested, but also ensuring that we're working a little bit harder to try to um, educate New Zealanders and young Kiwis in particular about the career path that hospitality can provide. I think there's still a, an overwhelming tendency to look at hospitality as a as a front of house role, but there's of course you know management opportunities that sit in behind that, and skills that are transferable to to most other um, vocations. Can we make any generalisations about which businesses have survived COVID and which has haven't? Um, it, it's mixed. Um, I, I think those that have embraced new ways of working uh, and were quick to do that have certainly fared better. But over, across the board, I think we're starting to see some pretty strong um, evidence that, that we're building back and those that have got a high quality offering um, and go the extra mile to provide strong hospitality, manakitanga to their customers, um, are certainly you know, standing out. Um, there are, there's no question, there's still issues for us to resolve, um, but overall I think we're heading in the right direction. And the, and the pleasing thing is that we're starting to have much stronger engagement with both the opposition and with government uh, than we've had in the past. But we still, I think, struggle to get clear definition around where hospitality sits. It, it runs across multiple ministries um, and we'd love to see a little bit more focus and I think a more coordinated approach from government around how it engages with the sector more generally. So is one of the things you're advocating for a Minister of Hospitality? Yeah, we have, we've said that. We've been quite <coughs> open about the fact that we think there's a good argument for it. Um, whether we get to that point or not is is to be seen, but certainly we would like to see, for example, MB has got yeah, a number of different areas that it focuses on, tourism being one of them. We think it's we're at a point in time where there's a justification for a resource to be put and dedicated towards hospitality too. So what if a Minister of Hospitality was established? What kind of things would that Minister be immediately looking at? Uh, well, certainly, I've kind of touched on two of them. One would be looking at how immigration settings currently impact us. There's no, yes. there's no doubt that we uh, rely heavily on on international students and foreign labour to support the sector more generally. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to focus on e- educating and, and informing New Zealanders about opportunities, but um, but there's no doubt that, that we, we we need to have that as a core part of uh, of supporting the sector. And then, as I say, the training the training piece and educating New Zealanders about uh, you know what a vocation looks like in the sector is also really important. So that immigration education space, generally, you know, regulatory environment remains a, a tough one. There's consistently additional costs being put on to business, and um, you know we're working our way through through that at the moment. 
you know, I guess the headline issue that we're, we're, we're currently getting our head around and starting to work on on behalf of members is around um, fair pay agreements. Yes. And, you know, it remains to be seen where that will go um, after the election. We've, we're, we're hearing from national pretty strong signals that they'll they'll set that aside. Yes. But at the moment we're preparing as though that's that's something we're going to have to for, to deal with and we're doing that in good faith at the moment. But you would support scrapping them? Oh, I think most members would, would say that, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I can understand the intent behind it. Um, but actually, if recent data would suggest that the sector's already moved quite a long way towards dealing with some of the issues that I think the FPA is designed to, to, to address, um, and one of them being being pay. You know, we're, we're well ahead on average um, in terms of a living wage, and that number continues to go up. So I'm not sure that it's an area that needs to be you know, front and centre right now, and, and we really do want to see our businesses to continue to, to build back after COVID without having additional um, weight being put placed upon them. What would you say to criticism, though, from people who say, well, if a business can't afford to pay sort of a, a minimum floor wage as per the fair pay agreement, they don't deserve to be in operation? I mean, that's what some people claim. Well, I think some of those businesses have, have folded as a result of COVID. So in a mm. sense, we've had a bit of natural attrition off the back of that. Yeah. And those employers that are prepared to go the extra mile, not just in terms of pay, but also the conditions that they're providing to staff are, are the ones that are attracting the talent at the moment. So those that provide a little bit more incentive are, are open-minded to how staff are engaged, um, provide training opportunities and are looking at you know how to empower their staff to have a career longer term. Um, I think are the ones that are that are standing out, and and certainly you know other other others that aren't doing that are noticing the impact that that's having. Um, so I think that's starting to lift standards naturally. Um, okay, so you say in your first few weeks you're going to be going to visit a very broad swathe of your membership. Mm. What are you intending to do? How are you going to do that? Um, um, well, given given the, the, the membership and the number of branches, it's not something I'll be able to do particularly quickly, but there are some areas that I've identified that I'd, I'm really keen to go and sit down with members at the earliest opportunity and, and hear directly from them. Yes. The, my aim here is to make sure that we've got clarity around our, our strategy, and I also want to make sure that we're working a little bit more um, seamlessly with a, a number of other associations. The visitor sector has got a number of bodies who are out there representing the interests of members, and I think there's some opportunities for us to be a little bit more collaborative and work a bit smarter around some issues to ensure that we are heard. At the moment, too many fragmented voices representing issues up to government. I think the power of you know, a more consolidated approach would be much more effective. Are they feeding back that this current government has listened to them enough in the last few years? Well, I think the overwhelming response to that would be no. Um, I, I would say, you know, my view in recent times, we've had we've had some good positive engagement. Um, Minister Hanare has been, been particularly good to deal with and has been open to, to listening. But of course the proximity to the election has meant that it's great to have a, an ear and to feel that you're being listened to. What we want to see is evidence that, you know, should he remain in the role uh, post-election, that what he's heard is starting to be actioned. Right. Steve, thank you very much for talking to MBR. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Heading into the election, retailers are facing political insecurity on top of increased crime and economic uncertainty. Retail NZ Chief Executive Carolyn Young joins me over Zoom to talk about the sector. Welcome, Carolyn. Kia ora, welcome. So what is the general mood of retailers heading towards the election? 
Look, I think, you know, we do a quarterly survey through um, Retail New Zealand called Retail Radar. And what we've seen um, recently is that there's lots of challenges facing retailers and, um, you know, impacts especially on confidence around the ability to trade and continue trading. We're seeing that we've seen a 26% jump in retailers being unsure or not confident that they'll continue to survive the next 12 months. That's significant. We haven't seen these levels since COVID uh, came out in, in 2020. So I think that's a really big issue. You know, costs increasing, um, inflation, uh, and the impact of um, crime is is really the you know key issues that retailers are facing, which is leaving them unconfident in terms of how things are moving forward. And as political parties start to put out policy and things like that, is there anything that retailers really want to see them focus on? Yeah, there's probably three or four things I think that um, would be our biggest action areas. And so um, it's unfortunate to say that. Um, Retail crime is one of the biggest things that's impacting retailers right across the breadth of um, the industry. So it doesn't matter if you're a large business or a small business, a dairy to a high-end clothing store and everything in between, everyone is seeing significant rates of crime increasing. And that will range from things like um, ram raids, which we hear a lot about in the media, to petty thefts, to organised um, scale of theft, to aggravated robbery, to abuse and violence against staff. And that has a real impact on businesses in terms of Productivity, interruption in business, um, uh, you know, the, the, the cash in, in people's ability that are working in retail to confidently move forward and feel safe in the environment that they're in. And uh, staffing wise, has the sector noticed any sort of decline in people interested in working in retail with sort of increased crime? Are they feeling like they might want to move on from the sector? Well, we do see a gap in terms of the ability for employers, for retail employers to find quality staff in the space um, and to be able to retain staff. And certainly things like the, the conversations around uh, crime are one of the factors that people may not think um, is a you know a great place to be working because you know obviously that can have a real impact on your well-being and and you know how safe you feel going into work each day. So it's certainly one of the factors that's impacting the ability to get quality staff. And the fact that crime is so I suppose widespread around the country, it's not sort of isolated to a particular area and is also impacting both sort of large and small businesses, as you mentioned before. Has that sort of created a, a rallying factor, sort of a united retailers, in a sense? Uh, yes and no. So I think uh, retailers can, uh, across the board, if they're speaking to colleagues and peers in the sector, everyone's facing similar challenges. So they can share information and, and what's been happening and they've got people to talk to. But um, it's not a... It's not a thing that you really want to be um, uh, sharing a, a commonality around. Certainly, in uh, there's, we've seen pockets of more crime in Auckland, Hamilton, and Christchurch, uh, and it is happening right everywhere. But there are some more aggressive things that have been happening in some of those areas. And then there's some things where some of the people that are com committing these crimes have got really good social networks around how they. Uh, how they communicate out with people across the country and then we see similar crimes happening through the country. So, you know, although there's some bigger things happening in some big cities, it's, it is right throughout the country that it's happening. 
And does Retail NZ and I suppose sort of more broadly retailers feel like the current government has done enough to support the sector? Look, it's um, if speaking about crime specifically, it's a really complex area because um, there's a whole range of factors that come into account because it's not just someone of a certain age or demographic or um, that you know has a certain driver. There's a whole wide range of things, and you need a um, you know it's a, a whole social change that needs to occur. It needs a whole lot of different people to have input across education, justice, social development, police, and organisations such as ourselves to work together to collaboratively come up with solutions that will um, match the different uh, culprits that we're finding and that are coming through the system. And we do want to, you know, like it's a really sad thing to think that we are seeing some social changes in the terms of behaviours that we want to see, that, that we're seeing in New Zealand that we don't want to see and haven't seen previously. So I think they're really important for the whole community in New Zealand to think about how we want to interact with each other and what we feel is acceptable and not as acceptable in terms of a country that we want to live in. And the incoming government, whether it's the current government re-elected or a, a change in government, would you like to see more engagement with the sector from them? Always good to see uh, more engagement. Of course, there's lots of other issues to take into account as well. Um, you know, there's things around, uh, and it's been a hot topic this week, the Retail Payment System Act and, and you know, uh, the next Minister of Commerce, whoever that might be, um, you know, they've got the power to direct the Commerce Commission to deal with acquiring fees and we'd like to see, you know, um, uh, the entire merchant rate fee to be reviewed. Um, you know, the payment system is really complex and, and um, you know, the interchange fee is only one part of that. So it's a really complex system and finding some way to make some changes in that space would be, you know, really uh, a positive step forward. Uh, looking at, um, you know, the big issue, of course, is the other big issue, of course, is inflation. And, you know, retail businesses are also consumers, so they're experiencing domestic inflation and they're also having issues in their workspace as well. So margins are super tight in, in retail, um, averaging, you know, um, for every $20 spent with a retailer, there's an 80 cents net margin, so that's quite small. Uh, and, you know, as you get increasing external prices, it's, there's always a lag between when a retailer can increase their prices to cover those those costs in some situations. So, you know, we really want to have an economy that is thriving so that as consumers need, you know, more confidence to spend and to, if interest rates come down, the consumers have got more money in their pocket, then they'll go back into um, retailers and, and have the confidence to continue to spend in those spaces. So that's a sort of a holistic view around, you know, where we need to see inflation work. And, and then, you know, you could look at something like the Consumer Guarantees Act. It's been around for 30 years and probably due for a refresh. And that would be something that, you know, um, the next government uh, could also could look at and address. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Kakitia Noa. Tim O'Donoghue has been a pharmacist for over 30 years in New Zealand and overseas, and in the course of doing so has found himself listening to hundreds, maybe thousands of customers with annoying and often embarrassing medical issues needing over-the-counter relief. He now has a product for one of the most common of these and is seeking capital to launch the product into the US and other offshore markets. Tim joins me now, and Tim, let's talk about that embarrassing health issue that has sparked this journey. What have you heard about it over the years? 
Well, this is itchy butts and hemorrhoids, and it's a topic that everybody has and no one wants to talk about it. The Mayo Clinic in New York uh, says that 75% of all adults have this problem on off their whole lives. And in pharmacies, we now see men coming in to talk about erectile dysfunction without looking one way or the other to see who's listening. Uh, women have been ahead of it for years, happy to talk about thrush at the counter, but when it comes to talking about your backside, it seems to be a bridge too far. It's just too embarrassing for people, partly because there's a, a widely held belief that they're the only one with the problem. Very amazed to find out that it's a really common thing. And it's partly to do with the solutions on offer where the big pharma have chosen products and presentations and names that really just make this already embarrassing uh, experience worse. Products such as Anasol, Proctocell, Preparation H, Rectinol, the list goes on. It's, it's, it really hasn't helped anybody speak freely about it to uh, either health professionals or even family and friends. Right. So hemorrhoids is the is the problem, and it's very, very common, as you say. You've come up with a way of allowing people to request a preparation that doesn't have an embarrassing name. Yeah, that's right. In fact, th- this first product, uh, that we, we have a range of products for self-care. That's our, that's our mission in, in, in life, letting people treat themselves. So it's partly formulating products that are really effective but don't require a prescription or further still don't even require you to have to go into the pharmacy to get it. Just in this particular problem, people are looking for a lot of discretion uh, and this is where direct-to-consumer models are fantastic. But this product was designed in conjunction with the consumer. So an ultimate consumer-driven product where over a period of years, um, I was able to work with them until we had a product that everybody found was really successful. It was presented a certain way and it had a name that everybody liked. The name actually comes from the Latin for uh, without steroid, a steroid, and it's asteroid. And that is a name that people have loved. It's a little bit of a play on the colloquialism of the anatomy, but also of the medical problem. And nobody minds a product in their plastic bag at the airport called asteroid. It's just something flying through the sky compared to something that says anusol. And, and this is something that we worked with with the customer. Right. So let's just go back to the beginning of establishing the company. You were obviously a pharmacist. You've heard these things. You've made your own preparations over the years, I understand. When did you decide to make this an actual export business, which is what you're trying to do here? Well, yeah, the product had been designed for some years and we were selling them in our pharmacies in the UK where you're allowed to sell a product that you made. And it was really the customer that was urging us, take this to market. Uh, we would we, we would buy it. You know, there were just so many glowing reports about it. But I had had a, a, a background in pharma and big pharma in the early part of my career. And I knew that it was going to take a great deal of effort and I'm a Kiwi and I really like the idea that I would hold on and launch the product from New Zealand. So there'd been a, practically all that time has been preparing to do this um, because I know this is a David and Goliath situation. A Kiwi company, a pharma company, a new one, going up against uh, big pharma in the US is uh, something that you really have to do a lot of preparation to get ready for. And uh, we decided finally we launched this product um, in New Zealand just around lockdown time, so that was a little unfortunate. Um, and we've had a great response ever since. 
Uh, in the meantime, we've been working our way through all the regulatory in Australia, and of course that behemoth, the, the FDA in the, in the US, and we've been successful in Australia, and we're only three months away from um, finishing off with approval in the US. So we're really excited about that. You are looking for some capital. Um, now yep. tell us about where your capital, how much are you looking to raise? Where are you looking to raise it from? Well, the hard work has actually already been done for, for where you would normally be looking to uh, spend at this stage. We've already done the investment in that. A lot of it was uh, intellectual work. We are raising $2 million to cover the next two years. That is to finish off the FDA work and to set up and sell the first batch of uh, asteroid into the United States using the e-commerce model and, and the, the 3PL distribution. And we have 500,000 of that already. So we're now seeking another 1.5 to cover that first two years. After that, there is a lot of logical extensions and possibilities, but we'd be absolutely delighted to achieve those. Um, there'll be a break even at year two, actually. And for a New Zealand pharmaceutical company to do that in two years uh, is quite remarkable, and we know it's very achievable. The other thing that's interesting about it is it's not a matter of you just boxing up a whole lot of this product and sending it over. You are looking at setting up a platform, a self-care pharmacy platform in the States. Now, can you just tell us about this platform and why it doesn't compete? You're saying in there it doesn't compete with the Boots and the Walmart and all that kind of thing. It's quite different. It is quite different. So that's that'll be called Neocura, which is a play on Latin for new care. And this is really um, acknowledging the upswing in self-care that's especially in the US that, that is coming. All the research says that um, the, the, the consumers want to be able to look after themselves a lot more in, in the medical space particularly. So health techs will not be a customer facing name. It'll be Neocura. And as part of the e-commerce offerings, there will be support that goes with, um, say for example, if we, we've got a number of products, but we'll talk about Asteroid in this case, uh, is the, the challenger product in the first instance, you would also be able to, as part of the funnels, click on and, and hear the pharmacist speak about, you know, about hemorrhoids, hey, you're normal, three out of four people have this problem, and here's some other things that you could do. So the Neocura part of it is a, is educational platform and starting to set up the platform for the future uh, for the point where the pharmaceutical company could be um, running itself, um, other parts of the the process could be run by health techs. So it may get to a point where we're not using the 3PL in the same way, for instance. So that's where Neocura fits in. The, the consumer will see Neocura products uh, on the labels and the other products that follow will also say Neocura. The reason we're not competing with, say, CVS, the pharmacy chain in the US, is because they are selling all kinds of things from a pharmacy. In this case, what you're doing is buying the product directly from the designers, the pharmaceutical company that's making it, with the opportunity to interact with the uh, health information. For example, if you're talking about hemorrhoids or an itchy butt, the, there's things you can do around um, the way you go to the toilet, the, the diet you have, the exercise you have, and all that can go with the product. So that's when Yokura fits in. Right. Um, you talked about the FDA approval. Obviously, with a product like that, like this, um, FDA approval is critical. Are you 100% assured of getting approval? 
Yep, we are. So we've spent the last three years working on this uh, and working with a consultancy firm now also who include uh, former FDA employees who've been right at the top and so we have it in writing that this is a formality from here. Right, okay. And that has been a long process, obviously, a very thorough... Yeah, that's like doing a jigsaw puzzle with the face down. It's a a really... It's a complex process, the FDA. Right. So, Tim, I mean, it seems a bit like a no-brainer product with a a market, certainly a market. (laughs) What are the risks? Are there any risks to investing in in this venture? Well, I think the risks really are around the the e-commerce, the cut-through. Certainly the product being a consumer-driven product in the first place, I don't think there's any risk of the product not being being received favourably. It's really the risk is around getting to people. And we've got some great insights that we're sharing with OMG already because when we we, um, launched this product in in New Zealand, we also ran a one-year campaign a digital marketing campaign it was a very simple one, but we really wanted to prove for ourselves that people were interested in this topic, uh, interested in this medical problem. Now, in New Zealand, we've got 1.9 million sufferers with the with the problem, and after one year, we stopped this campaign because uh, 484,000 New Zealanders had clicked on. So, a quarter of every everyone had clicked on these ads three or four times. And it was a simple message saying, you know, a new product, a new solution for an age-old problem. But what was more amazing was the information that we were starting to get out of the comments that were coming back. It was, people were talking about could they get one for their partner, so we realised that was something. Um, the value proposition came out of that. It was people talking about anxiety, so we, we realised that actually it's not just being normal, it's this, the thought of the anxiety of being caught at the wrong moment or you know not looking mm. forward to going to the toilet. Or, mm. or It really came through. So we think that we're mitigating the risk in so many ways based on the experiences of another English-speaking um, country, another English-speaking market. So... Um, the OMG, Omnicom Media Group, have had a look at this and they think we are um, low with our forecasting based on all their experience in the US. So that's where I think the risk is more than anywhere, but I think we've mitigated it pretty well. And I, the other part of it is going with a bigger group like OMG. Tim, thank you very much for talking to NBR. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Shoeshine columnist Maria Slade hates eating her words, but a new report on what drives rental prices is forcing her to chew on a few this week. Maria, what words are you having to eat? You may recall that a few months ago I predicted that the non-deductibility of mortgage interest costs policy that the the government has brought in was going to lead to a polarising of the rental market. We were going to end up with the cashed up landlords at one end and the social housing providers at the other and the mums and dads in the middle were going to get squeezed out uh, because it's simply becoming unaffordable for them without this deduction. And... uh, that I think still is happening, but 
whether it's actually going to have an effect on the rents that uh, you know renters have to pay. Uh, well, there's been this report that's come out from Treasury that's just completely blown my theory. <laughs> oh, right. So what did the Treasury report show about rent prices? It's a very interesting report because you would think with all the sort of hand-wringing there is about rental costs in this country that there'd be more research on what drives them, but there actually isn't. So, so it's a pretty important piece of work that's been done. And what they've found is that the biggest drivers of rental prices are wages and housing supply. And mortgage interest rates actually were a bit player. They really had no effect. And so wages and rents have risen, risen pretty much in tandem. And the, the, the number of houses available for rent are a much bigger factor. And so the significance of this is the landlords are all saying, right, well, you know, we're going to have to sell up. Um, we can't afford to be in the rental market. But, it, but in actual fact, what has happened over the last 20 years or so is that while interest rates have been very low, you might have thought that would float through to rents. It didn't. What happened was house prices went up because lots of cheap money available, restricted housing supply is what Treasury is saying. And so that is a, that is a far greater driver of what happens than um, their interest costs. And so they're saying now there's no evidence that if they can't deduct mortgage interest, they are going to, um, you know, that will flow through to, to rental prices. In actual fact, probably what would happen is if they feel they need to sell up their homes because they can't afford to keep them, uh, that'll just drive the, the price of houses down. It won't have an effect on the rents mm-hmm. that are charged. And you might say, OK, so there's fewer rental houses. Well, uh, for every one less rental house, there's probably one less renter because they might have bought a house. So the Treasury is saying, nope. Nothing to see here. It's not going to affect it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the opposite from what uh, landlord representative groups had been saying, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, they are all, um, you know, crying foul, saying, you know, this is going to force us out of the market. There's going to be fewer rentals. It is interesting to have a look at the sentiment at the moment. There is no evidence that they're actually holus bolus selling up. All the surveys at the moment are showing that they're kind of sitting on their hands. They're, they are a much uh, smaller proportion of the market now than they were. At the peak, um, landlords with mortgages were about 30% of the market and now they're only about 21%. So they're not buying new houses, but there's no evidence that they're selling up the existing ones. And there is a theory that they're pretty much just sitting on their hands and waiting to see what happens in October because, of course, the national government has, uh, well, the national party has pledged to uh, remove the policy if they become the government. Uh, Also, the market's at the bottom at the moment. The policy hasn't been fully implemented. It's being phased in. So, yeah, it could be just a holding pattern for landlords at the moment. So do we actually have enough houses at the moment? That is a very good question. And I spoke to um, an analyst from the Child Poverty Action Group who has done his own figures on how low-income households are affected because the figures Treasury used were an average. Uh, Interestingly, while it shows that wages and um, uh, rents have gone up in tandem and people are not actually paying a greater proportion of their incomes on rent than they used to, that's not true for lower-income people. And this analyst is saying there's there's a lot of reasons for that. One are that old housing stock are being knocked down and 10 townhouses are being built in their place and those townhouses are a lot more expensive to rent. So the supply of cheap rental stock is not there. The government's taken out quite a bit of it for emergency housing. That's had an effect. Um, The government's emergency housing grants have also bid rents up a bit. And this analyst is saying the Treasury argument that it's all about flexibility of land supply. We just need, um, you know, that we need 
more flexible zoning so we can build in fill. He said it's becoming a bit of a tired argument and he actually believes there's enough houses in Auckland now, in fact probably too many, and that is being reflected in the fact that rents are dropping in Auckland. Uh, but also what he says is what we need is to figure out how to build more appropriately, how to build houses more cheaply so that people at the lower end can actually afford them. So make of that what you will. But I think, you know, my conclusion out of all of this is um, the landlords are OK uh, and, you know, rents are probably not going to skyrocket as a result of the current policy settings. Maria, thanks for your time. Thank you. Today in our Toil and Trouble Employment Law slot, I'm speaking to employment law specialist Jennifer Mills about a recent trial where a Kiwi employer gave its staff unlimited annual leave for a year. Jennifer, first of all, thank you for coming in. Um, Can you tell us what we have as an entitlement, just so we know what basis we're going from here? So the Holidays Act sets out an employee's annual leave entitlement. Employees are entitled to four weeks annual leave after 12 months' continuous service. Um, the, The key point about New Zealand is that the Holidays Act is highly prescriptive. So any leave which isn't taken um, must be carried over. And of course, an employee has any untaken leave paid out on termination. The idea of unlimited leave is commonly used overseas where there isn't a highly prescriptive statutory regime. And that makes sense. Um, The key here for action step was that in their policy, they very carefully drafted that the Holidays Act minimum entitlements would still apply, but then there is unlimited leave. And that's the key. So any employer looking to introduce some kind of scheme where there might be unlimited leave would need to ensure that the holidays and holidays entitlements under the Holidays Act are used first because you wouldn't want an employee to take a significant amount of leave um, and then on termination claim that that accumulated um, the Holidays Act leave, four weeks leave each year for however long an employee's um, service might be. So the, the, the rub here is that action step is requiring its employees to overperform. So they're very clearly said in their policy, this policy is for employees who meet their targets. And I've seen what an international IT type environment looks like. I've seen it in Sydney. Um, I've gone in and employees have access to a kitchen, um, a cafe, a pool room, a bar, um, sleep pods, um, uh, man caves and quiet areas. And the idea behind those um, IT solution international companies is that employees don't leave. You live there. Your targets are extremely burdensome. And if you reach them, you'll get extra leave. And I think that's the idea here for Action Step. They're an IT solutions provider for mid-sized law firms. Um, Their IT people, um, provided they meet their targets, can then take leave. Um, They're required to talk to their team members and managers so that they don't um, miss um, work or miss deadlines. And that's creating an environment where there is collaboration, which is a good thing for team members, um, and collaboration with managers to get the work done, but employees would feel concern leaving their workload for an unreasonable period of time for other team members, and that would drive a certain culture within an organisation. So my point about that, the rub, is that in certain industries, unlimited leave could work. 
in some industries and for some types of work, it simply wouldn't work. So if you're Hillary and Jeremy and Seven Sharp saying this is a great idea, we love it, it wouldn't be practical because they're required to be on air at a certain time, you know, five days a week. So it's not going to be a situation where Hillary can say, well, right, I'm off, I'm going to take my six weeks now because I've, um, you know, I'm feeling like I need a break. It's only ever going to work in a scenario where you've managed to reach your targets. You might have worked 20 hour days for four or five months and you need a, um, a full break away from um, your work to have a reset and a refresh. Action Step have said that it's part of their general um, flexible work regime, so they're allowing people to work from home um, and they're saying that this has been um, exponentially increased post the COVID era and I think that's right. Employers have um, accepted that employees can work from home in part or adopted hybrid working um, arrangements but employers generally in New Zealand have been reluctant to um, introduce an unlimited leave type policy. What we do see in some of the large corporates is discretion relief and this is how it would work and should appropriately work in New Zealand. So where we have a highly prescriptive holidays regime and employers entitled to say in addition to that regime, and we must comply with that because that's a statutory minimum, um, you can have additional discretionary annual leave, sick leave, pet leave. We're seeing more and more people needing to take take time off for sick pets. Um, It is true. Uh, And and it's a bonding. So some people, that's their family. So, you know, for them, it's a, you know, an issue. Uh, And obviously bereavement leave, but it's all in the employer's discretion and it's all in addition to the statutory um, minimum. And it can work. We've got a good worker. Um, We know, uh, well, historically the labour market's been tight. It's perhaps less tight now. But employers are keen to keep their talented staff and that that flexibility, which would include discretionary discretionary leave, is one way of uh, retaining staff and and keeping that flexibility within the organisation. So what you seem to be talking about is a perk rather than a whole different structure. It's a perk rather than um, an entirely different concept where you can take as much leave um, as you want. I think it's great a great marketing campaign for Action Step. Uh, you know, they've come out to say this this is working for us and it would work in an environment like that. So any employer where you've got high-performing people, they work long hours, they're project and deadline-driven and they'll do everything to get that done, um, then can take leave. And they're highly productive um, you know, team members and employees. It wouldn't work if you're on a processing line and you, you know, you need to be there checking quality, for instance. Um, it, it wouldn't work where um, you're required to be available to customers um, in, in a front-facing role. Would right. be another example. So employers don't have to blow a gasket about this, thinking it might become the next thing they have to grapple with. But I am interested in what you were talking about in terms of a man cave. <laughs> How does one have a man cave in the modern workplace? It is true. So in that particular organisation, um, it had its head office in Sydney. You had a crawl through um, man cave where you would sit in a, a, a what had been con- a cave which had been constructed, and there was a suite of caves for anyone who needed, you know, the. Um, Classic man cave, but it wasn't limited to men. Don't it wasn't discriminatory or intended <laughs> yeah. to be so um, in in any way. But the 
the working format was remarkable. Employ and and we were shown the sleep pod room, and we were told you, that you must be quiet. Um, and people in the middle of the day were you know fast asleep in their pods, mm. um, which is all designed to keep people at work. So they're living and breathing um, their work. That's amazing. Jennifer, thank you very much for coming in. You're welcome. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.